Welcome to Flip the Script, your go-to podcast about health disparities. My name is Max. My guest today is Erica Stallings. She's an attorney, a writer, and a patient advocate. I'll let her tell us a little bit more about herself. Uh, first off, Max, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I love any opportunity to talk to people about hereditary cancer and making people aware of the racial health disparities that exist in that area. So just a little bit more about me, as you mentioned, uh, I'm an attorney based in New York. My practice is focused on intellectual property, but as we'll probably get into more during the conversation in 2014, I learned that I had inherited a BRCA2 mutation, which significantly elevated my risk of developing breast and ovarian cancer. And through my journey of having a preventative mastectomy, you know, and just learning more about what that was. I started learning a lot about the racial disparities that exist when it comes to access to genetic testing and counseling. And that was really the genesis of me, you know, first writing about it and then, you know, taking further steps to really become an advocate in this space um, for, for black women. Well, thank you so much for the advocacy that you do. I've had a chance to come across your reading, um, and I'm very much moved by um, how much you know you've used your personal experience to turn it into advocacy for the community at large. Um, so why don't you tell me a little bit about what that landscape of disparities and access to to genetic testing look like? Yeah, so that's that's a really interesting question. So I'll sort of I'll sort of break that apart. So it's really interesting because there's a there's like so many layers to the problem. You know, the first one is that, you know, I think this is an area that impacts all areas of medicine. Mm-hmm. You know, Black women and Black individuals are generally underrepresented uh, in clinical trials and studies. So in some ways, we don't have a great picture of the full number of um, African-Americans or Blacks that might um, be BRCA carriers, you know, because they're not. So, right, it's like a chicken and egg problem. Mm-hmm. You don't really know the full extent of what you're dealing with because people aren't getting getting tested. Mm-hmm. Um, but from the research studies that have been done, uh, and if people want to do further research, um, one of the leading uh, researchers in the space is a woman named uh, Dr. Tuya Powell, who's now at Vanderbilt University. Uh, but when she was at Moffitt Cancer Center in Florida, uh, she did a lot of studies analyzing um, access and awareness of genetic counseling and testing among black women who have had cancer. Mm -hmm. Um, And what she, what, what she has found consistently is that even when black women meet the federal criteria to be, you know, to, for, so, so this is when a doctor should have a conversation with them about genetic uh, counseling and testing. Doctors are not having that conversation. Um, I don't have the specific stat in front of me, um, but we, we know that there's a gap, right? You know, so, um, there's sort of an information gap, right, where where doctors are not recommending genetic testing to Black women, even though they're meeting what is known as the NCC, NCCN uh, criteria for, for doing so. Um, there's also some data that even when Black women uh, test positive for a BRCA mutation, they're not undergoing prophylactic surgeries at the same rate as their white counterparts. Yeah. There's still an open question as to why that is. You know, is it because they're not interested? or is it because doctors are not re- recommending it to them as a risk reduction strategy. Uh, so that's an area of further research. But I think one thing that is particularly interesting to me about genetic counseling testing and why I get so passionate about it um, is that it's an area that when it is offered to Black women or they're made aware of it, people are very interested in it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very contrary because you always hear, you know, people say, well, 
you know, black people rightfully so are just truffle medicine because it's the Tuskegee experiment and other things like that. Um, but there's data that, you know, black women leap at the opportunity not to only better understand their cancer, but to potentially prevent cancer in their family members. Um, so it's, it's a missed opportunity. And the other reason I get so passionate about it is, um, I can't remember what researcher said it to me, but he was like, you know, we're moving to an age of precision medicine, right? Like we're going to increasingly be using um, personalized medicine, using um, genetics. And BRCA is right now the gene that we know the most about. And so like, if we can't figure out how to like properly test everyone who needs to be tested for like this kind of thing, it doesn't bode well for what precision medicine is going to look like overall. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so this is kind of like the opportunity to get a rate. Um, and to your, to your other, sorry, and I just want to make sure I touch on the other point. So there's, there's, there's multiple um, genes that have been identified that are linked to um, an increased risk of cancer. BRCA uh, is the one that most people know about. Um, and, and let me clarify one thing. So everyone has a BRCA gene. When it functions normally, it produces proteins that actually um, lower your risk of cancer. And individuals like myself who have a mutation um, in BRCA1 or 2, those proteins aren't made, which is why your risk of cancer um, increases so exponentially. Uh, but there's other known um, hereditary cancer mutations. So there's CHECK2, there's PALB2. But what often happens uh, for, for black patients is because we're not in these databases, people will undergo genetic testing and they'll get what's known as a VOS, a variant of unknown significance. So what that means is that a scientist can look and see that there's a break in your genome but they can't really quantify what the risk for you is, right? Because there's not enough data to reference against. So that's why it's, it's another reason why we really have to increase the amount of people who are undergoing counseling and testing so that you have a more robust data set um, to help people understand their risk. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and so besides the lack, I guess, or this gap when you think about physicians not re um, referring their black patients for genetic counseling, uh, as often as they do their non-black patients, are there any barriers that you, um, you've, you've sort of like come across or are aware of that may um, prevent black women from getting genetic counseling? Is there any stigma around genetic counseling at all? Yeah, I would say, I, I think one thing that's really interesting, and this has been from my personal experience, um, actually, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit, of, I'll tell you a story. So I'm currently scheduled to speak at the National Society of Genetic Counselors meeting um, in November. Uh, the National Society of Genetic Counselors is the professional organization for um, genetic counselors in the United States. So I'm going to be speaking about uh, implicit bias and diversity and inclusion. Uh, and initially, the feedback from the committee was that they were really interested in having me speak, but they were worried that because I had um, high because I was an attorney and presumably had high socioeconomic status, mm -hmm. I might not be able to speak to the barriers that patients encounter, which I thought was like interesting feedback in part because one, I'm, when I go into a, a doctor's office, people don't see my JD. They don't know what, how much money I make, right? They just see me as a black woman. That's the interaction we have. But I also think that like there's a large problem of genetic, what I'll call it like, genetic literacy in this country. So mm -hmm. I think it's dangerous to assume that just because like someone has a JD or an MBA or makes a lot of money, that they know what it means to like have, to one, what a genetic counselor is, and then two, what a genetic counselor does, and then three, what's involved in testing. I talk to very highly educated people all the time who will reach out to me and say, my doctor said I need to get genetic testing and I have no idea what that is. 
Um, so I think another barrier is really just like the level of like genetic awareness in our society. So I think that's one problem. I think a second issue is that for most, um, which I think is, is a barrier, right? So when you look at where um, black patients are often treated, um, or if you look at the data about like when black individuals are going through cancer experiences, um, you know, going to like, you're, a black patient is less likely to be getting their treatment at one of these really robust academic centers, mm -hmm. um, right? Where they're going to be up on all the cutting technology um, and things like that, right? So that's like that's sort of a problem. Um, and you you know, if you start thinking about like hospital quality, um, right? So like maybe you know, if you're a black cancer patient and you're not at a hospital that already has an integrated genetic testing service, it's probably less likely that anyone's going to talk to you about it or you're going to be able to access it. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think sort of a a third thing that they're starting to also see in the literature is that even when black women are getting tested, there's sort of a gap in that information being communicated to family members, mm -hmm. which is really like a missed opportunity, right? Because genetic testing is not just about treating or preventing cancer in the individual. It's about treating and preventing cancer in the whole family. So right. if people aren't, if people aren't being educated about like how to have those conversations with family members, it's a missed, um, it's a missed opportunity. And then, and this is the last thing I'll say, a fourth is, you know, for most individuals, your interaction at a, at, with medical professionals, you know, is not an oncologist, right? It's your primary care physician, or if you're a woman, it's your OBGYN. And you can't even really assume that those individuals have a complex knowledge of cancer genetics, right? I mean, one, is not really their job. Um, so one thing I've been working on in conjunction uh, with some medical organizations is trying to figure out like if there's a way to create an app or a checklist, right? That people, when they go to their primary care physician or their OBGYN, they would answer some questions that would create like a red flag to be like, okay, like this person should be referred to talk to a genetic counselor. Because um, yeah. it's really also about like meeting patients where they are, um, which is, you know, challenging. Right. Um, oh. And finally, there's a shortage of genetic counselors in the United States. That's, so that's, that's a big issue. <laughs> that's a huge issue. Sorry, that's like one of the big, I mean, there's, I know, sorry, I talk about this all day. So there's a shortage of genetic counselors in the United States. I think if there's any upside to this um, current COVID-19 pandemic is that it's really pushing people to think about telemedicine. And mm -hmm. so there have been some pilot studies about, you know, doing genetic counseling, um, via by you know by telemedicine that have been promising mm -hmm. and so i think in this moment people are, are trying to figure that out uh which could increase access to genetic counselors mm -hmm. there's also like a diversity problem amongst genetic counselors so i'm shocked. only i, I know <laughs> only one percent of genetic counselors are black right so that's another problem to solve right like how do you increase diversity in that workforce so um it's there's just like a lot of work to be done mm -hmm. You mentioned uh, testing in one individual and how that uh, obviously has the potential to help prevent cancer in the family. And that makes me think of, you know, Angelina Jolie and the Jolie effect. Um, if, I, if, my, if my memory serves me right, I think Angelina Jolie's mother was... Uh, she is, I think, I think she's BRCA1. One, uh, yeah. So her mother and then herself, and she had the prophylactic mastectomy. And then... Beyond the family effect, there's a sort of like even larger uh, impact because she's Angelina Jolie and like at the time was like the most popular actress there probably was. Um, 
that sort of like propagation of the positive, the net positive effect of her making that very courageous act is making me think of a recent parallel, right? So Matthew Knowles, uh, Beyonce's dad, uh, was diagnosed with breast cancer. Yes, he had male breast cancer. Right, which rare, but it does happen. And as it turns out, he also tested positive for the BRCA2 um, mutation. Um, but I feel like I just haven't heard as much discussion around Matthew Knowles and uh, and and I wonder whether you think like is is that a um, a missed opportunity? Like I mean, he is Beyonce's dad. Literally, she's the biggest pop star alive right now, or probably of the last I don't know twenty years. Um, yeah, no, it 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 really is. It, I think it was a missed opportunity. I mean, he did do a segment on um, Good Morning America, um, but mm-hmm. I don't really know how much um, traction that got, and. You know, I, when he announced, I, I was fortunate I was able to place an op-ed in the New York Times I read that, yeah. about it, which I, you know, and I will, you know, we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about this when we talk about my advocacy work. There's definitely times I'm just like, is anyone reading this? Um, but I still get people who will reach out to me and say, like, I saw your op-ed. I think I have a family history of cancer. Will you talk to me? Um, but yeah, you know, it's it it was, and I'll you know I'll kind of be candid. I definitely like reached out to like a lot of black public, black focused publications to try to like get mm-hmm. them to do a story about it, um, which wasn't successful. You know, I think a major problem is that like in the media generally, when you're talking about breast cancer, people are like, yeah, I'll do something in October, right? Because everybody wants to do something during Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and then only during Breast Cancer Awareness Month. So, you know, it's. Um, and it's another reason it's unfortunate because, because like you said, with the Jolie effect and to like explain to the listeners, there's a data that I think in the year or maybe the two years after Angelina Jolie wrote her op-ed in the Times where she announced that she had a BRCA1 mutation and had a prophylactic mastectomy, there was a, like a statistically significant increase in the amount of women who sought out genetic counseling and testing. So these celebrity announcements can be a really big deal. And I remember someone saying to me, you know, I almost wish there was like a really prominent black woman celebrity who had this, right? Because I think it could do so much to get people thinking about it. Um, you know, so it's it's um it's an ongoing it's an ongoing battle. And I think maybe this sort of like dovetails with the current moment, right? Because I also think sometimes like in the media or amongst journalists, there's not always a lot of like science, um, science liter- literacy, if that makes sense. So mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a long-winded way of saying yes. I think it, was, I think it was a missed opportunity, and I wish people had talked about it more. Um, but you know, I also don't know if Beyonce. I mean, you know, I think she does do a lot of charity, and I think she keeps it very quiet. You know, so like I kind of mm-hmm. hope maybe, you know, in the next couple of years, you know, maybe she'll think about like donating to research or doing something um, like that. I think I think a major reason why the Matthew Knowles thing didn't get a lot of traction is because I think in many people's minds, BRCA mutations are a Jewish problem. And it's important to clarify one thing, right? So BRCA, BRCA mm-hmm. mutations are definitely much more prevalent in the Ashkenazi Jewish community. This current stat is one in 40 are carriers. Mm-hmm. But anybody of any race or ethnicity can have a BRCA mutation. Mm-hmm. But I think what happens is that people are like, well, that's like a Jewish thing. And so people don't really pay attention mm-hmm. when it happens in other races. 
I mean, I've had people, like, I go to all these conferences, um, and just for, like, people who are listening, um, you know, my mom is Black, my dad is German, so I, I certainly look, I certainly look like I have a mixed appearance, and I'll go to these like, conferences and stuff, and I can see people trying to figure out, like, if I have some type of Jewish ethnicity, because they, they like, they just can't understand, like, oh, she's Black, and how does she have this thing? And I've had people say that to me, like, we are not Jewish, so how do you have a BRCA mutation? <laughs> Which is, like, mm-hmm. So there, if there's like so, I, well, I'm just like, well, I, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I, I'm not a. I'm, genetic, genetics are funny, right? Uh, genetics so I think part of it is yeah. like this stereo, There's this, this stereotype, and you've actually I've seen that in the literature. There's a study from Ohio State last year, uh, yeah, last year where they were tracking 50, um, 50 black women and fifty white women who are all like high risk for breast cancer, um, and you know there was like this one quote where like the black woman had asked her uh, primary care physician, should she consider BRCA testing? And they're like, no, because that's like a Jewish woman problem, which is just not true, but it's like, it's a stereotype that's out there. And so I think that really impacts like how mm-hmm. people think about it and what the media coverage is. Um, so I want to hear more about the advocacy work that you have been doing related to BRCA um, uh, mutations awareness and in general, you know, like cancer, uh, patient advocacy. Yeah, so I guess um, I kind of want to just like give the the listeners a little bit of context. So my mother is a two-time breast cancer survivor. Uh, she mm-hmm. had cancer for the first time when she was 28 years old. This was in 1993 before they knew that there were um, genetic links to cancer. Uh, and then she had cancer again my senior year of college, so this is 2007. Uh, and I was going to school at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, which has a very good cancer center. Uh, Meinberger Cancer Center is one of the best cancer centers in the Southeast. So she got her treatment there. And she that's when she somebody was like, oh, yeah, you've had cancer twice before the age of 45. You need to undergo genetic testing. So that's when mm-hmm. we learned she had a BRCA2 mutation. So individuals who have a a mutation have a 50% chance of passing that on to their offspring. Uh, just so the listeners get some education, it can be passed from like male to female and men can carry it as well. So I knew that I had a 50% chance. So in 2014, um, because I was 29, I finally made the decision to get genetic testing myself uh, and learned that I also carried the mutation. And, you know, I am very cognizant that I, have had have and had immense privilege uh during that process so i knew i knew someone who knew the head of the high-risk clinic at nyu langone who um put me in touch uh with this woman julia smith who um is like you know a high-risk expert she got me a genetic testing appointment as soon as i wanted it Uh, i was able to get access to like really great care in new york city i had a job where I could take off as much time as I needed. I made a lot of money. You know, it was, as far as like choosing to have a prophylactic mastectomy, that's a really hard and stressful decision. But my privilege and money made it like as easy as it could be. But I think a tendency that I have is when I'm confronted with things I don't understand, I read a lot to understand them. So I was like, well, I'm, this is kind of interesting. Like I'm a black woman who has this thing and I've never seen other stories about black women having it. So I just started doing all this research on the internet. And one thing I found was that like there weren't any like personal essays or personal narratives from other black women. So I was like, how can that be? The second thing was I started finding all this data about the disparities. 
So that got me. So I was like, okay, well, if I'm going through this, it's, there must be other black women going through it. So I decided to write a piece that ran into Jezebel um, in the fall of 2014, just about like mm-hmm. my experience, like with testing, learning, um, sort of like the, mo- the emotional journey. Um, and, you know, and then I was like, oh, I'll probably never write anything again, but that was like fun. <laughs> uh, and then like a year later, I get this email from this woman who's like, oh, I work for the Bassler Center for BRCA. And the Bassler Center for BRCA is a research institution that is housed at the University of Pennsylvania. It was started in 2012 um, by uh, John Gray and his wife. John Gray is currently the president of the Blackstone Group. Um, so he has a lot of money. Um, but his sister-in-law died of ovarian, of ovarian cancer caused by a BRCA mutation. So they started mm-hmm. the center in 2012. And the goal of the center, all they do, they only do research on BRCA-related cancers with the eventual goal of creating a vaccine. Um, but obviously, I mean, that's a, a long time away, right? So they're constantly just working on how to create better treatments for people who are, are dealing with this and to also be like an educational center um, and to provide support to families. So someone at the Bowser Center saw this article I wrote and was like, oh, you just like explained it so well. Um, you know, like you kind of just really personalize your experience. We'd love to like talk to you about how to like maybe work together in the future. Um, because even though the Bassett Center is in Philly, the people who, the main donors live in New York City, which is where I live. Um, so I met with uh, John and his wife. Um, and so, what, I, so what, what eventually happened is that I started the Young Leadership Council for the Bassett Center for BRCA, which is like a group of individuals, uh, mostly in their 20s and 30s, um, and we do a couple of different things. Um, the, the first is that we, we do fundraising events to raise money to support research at the center. And then every mm-hmm. year we pick a young investigator um, to all the money we raise, we give it to a young investigator who's working on a project. And that's important to us because it's often hard for younger investigators to get funding. Um, so I think to date we've probably raised like $150,000 to support uh, research. And so every year we like look at the money and we vote on the project. Um, we also do like a lot of educational events. Um, because I, I think sometimes people are like, well, if you have a BRCA mutation and you don't have cancer, like how hard could it be, right? But there's like real, you know, psychological complexity. People have to make really complex choices about like their fertility. Um, you know, people's sexual health is impacted when they're having, you know, prophylactic mastectomies and, and everything. So we do a lot of events around that. Um, like the last thing we did was I spoke on a panel in February about like dating and intimacy um, and how you, one, communicate your BRCA mutation status to a partner um, and sexual intimacy after a mastectomy. And then separately from the work that I do with the Young Leadership Council, I am working with the Bassler Center to launch a website and an educational project called um, Black Times BRCA. So what that will be is a couple of things. Um, The first is that it will be a website, like a dedicated website that has information um, about BRCA rates in the African-American community. Um, It will have like a one-on-one video about like what a genetic counselor is. It will also have like a glossary of like terms you should know that people can print out and take to appointments with them. Um, and the second part will be like an educational poster campaign that will be like distributed, um, you know, to churches and, and networks and things like that. So I'm really excited about that, um, you know, just because I think it's, I mean, it's one piece of a very complex puzzle, right? I think mm-hmm. the patient education is just a piece. 
Uh, and then the second sort of part of my advocacy work is that I do a lot of writing in this area. Um, there's a Jezebel piece I mentioned. I had the op-ed in the New York Times. Uh, I did a reported story on um, lack of diversity amongst genetic counselors in the United States last year for NPR, which is now why I'm speaking at the National Society of Genetic Counselors meeting um, in November. Uh, and I'm also just always trying to figure out, like, for myself, like, the best way to be an advocate, which is, like, an ongoing um, journey for myself, you know, because I'm like, okay, like, I think the writing is important. I think the individual counseling that I do with people is very important. But I'm also trying to figure out, like, how to sort of tackle some of the more, like, systemic issues. So mm -hmm. one thing I was really excited about this year, which is probably not going to happen, is that I had applied to uh, participate in Project LEAD which is a program run by uh, National Breast Cancer Coalition. So it's like a five-day training course that teaches you the science of breast cancer. And then once it's over, you then are invited to participate on like NIH-funded projects like as a patient advocate or as a patient resource. Because um, I do mm -hmm. think it's really important to have a, a seat at the table for these research projects. Um, you know, so I think I'm always just sort of trying to figure out like, how can I use my voice and my time and my influence most effectively? Uh, one thing that we haven't talked about just yet is um, ovarian cancer. So um, obviously breast cancer is the most common um, female cancer, um, but ovarian cancer is the deadliest gynecologic cancer and BRCA mutations, um, as, you, as you've already mentioned, really increase uh, or significantly increase one's risk, uh, risk of ovarian cancer. And I wonder what, um, you know, from your advocacy um, and just discussions with black women um, who may have tested positive for the BRCA1 or 2 mutation, is there, um, I, what are people's sort of like thoughts and reaction to the, I guess, the potential of, you know, getting a, a prophylactic ophorectomy? Um, yeah, um, I'm glad you raised that because I think when people hear BRCA, they only think about the breast cancer risk, but it can increase your lifetime risk of developing ovarian cancer, I think up to 50%. Um, mm -hmm. it's, um, it's definitely something I think that people struggle with. So I'm really lucky. Uh, so in New York, I have this like kind of su informal support group. Um, we all happen to be attorneys um, and we're all women of color. Who all are have BRCA mutations, um, and you know, I have a friend who recently uh, underwent her prophylactic um, ovarectomy, which is a removal of the ovaries. You know, and she decided to wait until she, you know, had finished having kids. Obviously, I also talked to a lot of people who, you know, decide to freeze their eggs as a backup option, which is, you know can be very expensive, it can be stressful. Um, I think one of the challenges and why it's like a sort of a hard decision for people is because the science is still not great. Mm -hmm. I mean, I talk to BRCA researchers all the time and they're just like, yeah, like it sucks. We just don't necessarily have like great guidance to give you. Um, sort of the guidance right now is that you can wait until you're like 39, 40 to have the, mm -hmm. the um, uh, removal of the ovaries. So that's good because most people can at least try to get their childbearing out of the way. Um, I feel very hopeful that there are studies going on right now, clinical trials, where the theory is that ovarian cancer actually starts in your fallopian tubes and then migrates to the ovary. Mm -hmm. So they're doing clinical trials where they are taking 
doing a prophylactic removal of the fallopian tube, allowing people to have a regular uh, normal menopause, and then taking the ovaries out. Um, so mm-hmm. I'm very hopeful for that because I personally, like, not to be TMI, I'd love to have a natural menopause. Um, you know, but I just, I think it's just common. Science is just really all over the place, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like I get a CA125, which is a blood work test in conjunction with a transvaginal ultrasound every six months, which is like the current standard practice for BRCA carriers. But my OBGYN tells me all the time, like, this isn't like great. It's not a really great risk detection method. It's just the right. best thing we can offer you right now. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, that's why I was saying, like, I think talking about the mental health piece is so important because mm-hmm. I don't have cancer, but I kind of feel like I'm always sort of thinking about the risk of it and what it would mean if I got it. Right. So. It's all, I mean, does it feel like you're basically being chased by something you're, you're continuously running away from or? Um. Yeah, I mean, so to also educate the listeners, so BRCA is linked not, it's linked to breast cancer risk, ovarian cancer risk, colon cancer risk. Right. Um, If you're a man, prostate cancer risk. Oh, and pancreatic cancer risk. So, um, and and I'm very fortunate that the woman who is my overall BRCA management person, uh, Julia Smith, that I mentioned, on the one hand, it's great because she's very on top of it. The downside of that is that I feel like she's always constantly telling me I need to see another specialist. So currently right now, I see her twice a year just for like um, a physical breast exam of what tissue was left. I see a dermatologist to deal with my melanoma risk, which is another risk. I see an ophthalmologist to deal with my melanoma risk. I will start getting colonoscopies in my late 30s. I see the OBGYN twice a year. And I met with a pancreatic cancer specialist just to sort of talk about what that risk assessment is like, and that will start later. You know, but yeah, it is sort of like, it's, I always tell people, I kind of think of it as like a chronic condition Mm -hmm. in the sense that like, it kind of, it has like, hasn't gone away and kind of like will never go away in part because as they do all this research they find more and more connections between like cancer and brca Mm -hmm. and um in the in as part of your advocacy you've already mentioned you know the mental health piece and um the the fact that you have a uh, like an informal support network is there something like that at a larger scale for women of color who um and especially Black women who find themselves to be um, BRCA uh, mutation positive? Yeah. Um, you know, to be honest, there's not, which is probably like a thing I should start when I have free mystical free time. I will say there's some general, I know I'm always, there's like a list of things I'm always like, if I had free time, I would do those things. Um, I will say as a general matter, um, mm-hmm. There's a really great website that launched last year. It's called The Breast of Us. So mm-hmm. it was started by two I love black, that name. Yeah. It was started by two black women who are breast cancer survivors. They're not BRCA carriers, but it's meant to be like a website and a resource for um, women, you know, women of color who are dealing with breast cancer. Um, because even if you, you know, even if you're not just looking at BRCA mutation carriers, the overall mortality rates um, for breast cancer as a whole are terrible you know, black women are 40% more likely to die than white women. So Breast of Us is a great resource. Um, um, that all being said, I, you know, tell people all the time, I'm always, I'm one person, but I'm always here. 
as a resource for, for people. Um, but you, your question kind of like really identifies a need. And so now I'm probably just going to add that to the list of pandemic projects. I'm inside make progress on. And so one last question, if you had like a wish list of things that you'd like to see um, change or evolve in terms of um, BRCA awareness, uh, access to genetic testing, especially for um, black women, like what, what would your wish list look like? Yeah, I mean, my wish list would be one, just sort of compliance with the NCCN guidelines. Mm-hmm. So I, the NCCN guidelines were updated some point last year that all women who have had a breast cancer diagnosis should mm-hmm. have, sh- like, someone should have a conversation with them about genetic counseling and testing. And I, I'm sorry, let me say one more thing, right? I don't judge anyone who like has that conversation with genetic counselor and is like, this is not the right thing for me at this time. Mm -hmm. That's like, I think a thing I didn't really talk about, you know, the counseling piece is really important because sometimes it's not always the best time in someone's life. to like undergo testing and get that kind of news if the result is positive. But I think people should have that opportunity to have a conversation. Mm-hmm. So I think my first thing on the wish list is just like everyone who, you know, sort of meeting the federal criteria, um, which we know is the thing now. And also too, um, every woman who's had ovarian cancer is supposed to be referred to genetic uh, counseling and testing as well. And I still meet black women to this day who are like, yeah, I had ovarian cancer and no one talked to me about this. And I'm like, oh, you should go talk to someone. So that's the first thing on my wish list. Uh, the second thing is that I'd really love to see and I know in, in CG, uh, National Society of Genetic Council is trying to work on this. I'd really love if one of these like black billionaires, like Robert Smith, if you're listening, this is a great project for you. Hey, Oprah. Scholar- <laughs> I don't know like, they listen to me. But <laughs> yeah. Um, like a scholarship to encourage more black genetic counselors. Um, it's actually, I mean, it's a great career path. It's a growing field. It's a very well-paying field. But I think that like, you know, if you're like at an HBCU or even at just like a general school, no one's really talking to people about like become a genetic counselor. So I think mm-hmm. that's a missed opportunity. And I think as you have more black genetic counselors, you'll see just more of these like educational um, efforts in the community community organically. So mm-hmm. that's the second thing on my wish list. And the third thing is, which is a problem in medicine, but we can limit it to this conversation, is I really want physicians to like really think about their like implicit biases and mm-hmm. how that impacts what they give patients because I think you see it in this area I mean all areas but this area and I think the problem is you know people want to think of themselves as good people so when you start saying oh you're implicit you have implicit bias people are thinking that they're racist it's like you're not racist it just means you have a blind spot and you have to like do the work to like overcome that blind spot right so Mm -hmm. I guess those are my three things which are are, are big things but those are my but they're important yes Well, thank you so much for your time. Um, It was a pleasure hearing from your um, experience and also hearing about your advocacy. Um, And I look forward to seeing, you know, the sort of like next steps of where your work takes you, as well as more of your writing. Great. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you all for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of Flip the Script. You may follow the pod on Twitter at FlipscriptPod at F-L-I-P-S-C-R-I-P-T and myself at MaxJordan underscore N, M-A-X-J-O-R-D-A-N underscore N. You can follow my guest Erica Stallings on Twitter at Quidditch424 at Q-U-I-D-D-I-T-C-H 424.